Amen. Welcome, everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. Delighted to be with you. We're going to pick back up on the marriage series I started entitled For Worse. I was out last week. I was sick. Y'all, I was, I was so sick, you guys. This was bad, man. I had a stomach virus. It was so mean. I mean, I was like Paul going into the third heaven to meet Jesus. Um, turns out the third heaven is really close to the bathroom at Patent Pending uh, down in Bowling Green. Uh, I passed out in the bathroom. They said, how much has he had to drink? Casey said, he has a drug. It was a long story. But anyway, thank God for Matt Betts. Matt Betts jumped right in and preached for me. One of the ladies from our church said, Pastor Tim, you know, if you never came back, we'd be okay with, with, with Matt Betts. I think she was trying to say something nice, but that kind of sounds like, Pastor Tim, you could die. You could just die. And, uh, and uh, I said, Mama, that's not nice. That doesn't sound like anything. That, no, I'm kidding. It, it really wasn't my mother, but... 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's just preach. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The marriage series is entitled For Worse, and we've been trying to take a look at how to get through hard times in marriage. So often in our marriage talk around church, we speak of the biblical ideal, and and I hold up the biblical ideal of marriage, but so often in in real life marriage, it's so far from the ideal, and, and, and sometimes we really feel like it's it's very, very difficult to continue. So this morning, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and, uh, and speak honestly from the words of Paul about what happens when it seems like uh, your, your marriage is hanging by the last string. Um, at the same time, this coming year, I have more marriages and more weddings than maybe any other year I've had in a long, long time. So there are a lot of couples listening to these sermons, perhaps, that uh, aren't married yet and and are thinking, my goodness, this is getting really, really gloomy sounding. This is getting really, really negative. So let me just give you a little bit of good news. If you're following along in the live event on the YouVersion Bible app, I've put a link to an article that talks about your your, your actual risk of divorce if you're a couple just about to get married. We often hear that the divorce rate in the United States is something like what? Like 40 to 50%, 40 on the low end, 50 on the high end. And, and honestly, there's a lot of debate around that. Those, those figures are probably way too high. But let's just say for a moment they are that high. Uh, the, the important thing to remember is that those are general statistics that really apply to nobody in particular. To say that the national trend toward divorce is something like 40, 50%, that doesn't say anything about your likelihood of divorce if you were a couple just about to get married. Your own personal likelihood, risk of divorce, could be very, very different. And it really has to do with personal factors that pertain to you and your fiance. So you need to understand that there are personal factors that make a lot more difference than, than the national trend or, or the national average. For example, if you and your fiance decide to live together before you get married, statistics show that that tends to increase your likelihood of d- divorce by some say 50 on the low end, others say 80%. So, so your likelihood, that means more likely than anybody else, if you live together before you get married, your risk of divorce increases. It, it, it's not good practice for being married. Please spread the word because people think that. It, it seems to be more like practice for divorce. So, so your likelihood of, of getting a divorce increases if you live together. It also increases if you have your first child before you get married. It, it increases the likelihood that you will divorce. At the same time, if your parents divorced, that increases your personal likelihood of getting a divorce. You see how that works? It has to do with these personal factors that, that have probably more impact on your own uh, likelihood, your own risk of divorce. At the same time, studies show that there are factors that actually 
decrease your likelihood of divorce. For example, if you both marry as virgins, your likelihood of divorce is decreased. Most people who marry as virgins, uh, their marriages tend to last. I think that's really, really interesting. Also, if you share the same faith and if you regularly attend church together, your likelihood of divorce decreases in a major way. I know sometimes they say that the divorce rate in the church is the same as the divorce rate out of the church. And I don't know how true that is, but the divorce rate for those who are serious in their faith, who attend church regularly together and are, and are active in a, in a life of discipleship, that divorce rate is very, very low. So if you start looking at all the factors and, and adding them up in your own personal relationship with your fiance, there are probably people in the sound of my voice whose risk of divorce is nearly zero. You hear me? It's nearly zero. So don't listen to the statistics and don't listen to the, to the talk in, 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 our, in our culture that tells us that, that marriage is on a decline, that, that marriage doesn't last, that, that, that marriage is, is just as likely to end as it is to begin. That's just not true. There are many, many people who get married every single day and their risk of divorce is very, very low. And I would say most of the couples, maybe all the couples I marry this year, your risk of divorce is actually very, very low. Uh, so, so be realistic and, and be encouraged by the, the actual truth of, of, of how marriage works. There are things that make it more difficult and things that actually make your chances of making it quite strong, quite good. At the same time, I've never, ever stood at the altar with a couple who expected that they would get a divorce. Everybody who stands at the altar and makes those promises, they expect that they'll keep those promises to the very end, uh, expect to keep those promises for a long time. The problem is time is not always kind to promises. Time is not always kind to promises, and many, many couples find themselves living out the, the worst part of, of, of the promise to love for better or for, or for worse. How does a marriage end? How, how does it happen? I have a good friend named David Gushy who wrote an amazing book called Getting Marriage Right. I encourage it. Uh, Getting Marriage Right is a good book. David Gushy is his name. Gushy says that marriage is like a hammock, like the hammock that's in our backyard. You know what I'm talking about? One of those hammocks with a lot of strings. Uh, Gushy says that when a marriage is new, you begin uh, creating that marriage one string at a time like that hammock with, with promises kept. So as you begin to keep your promises together, you're weaving that hammock of many, many strings. And at first it's a little bit skimpy, but, but it will hold you and your wife if you continue to keep those promises. And that marriage over time is woven strong, string by string, promise kept after promise kept. And, and that, that, that time invested, that those promises, that faithfulness, it, it tends to build a very, very strong hammock. Uh, one that could support not just you and your spouse, but, but all the children, the 15 kids that you have, whatever. That hammock becomes strong enough to support your family. It's a hammock that is woven together out of multiple strings, and those strings are promises kept. But, but what happens when, when one of the promises is broken? What happens when one or the other of you fails to live up to the promises that you made to, to stay together, to love one another in sickness and health, and richer for poor, better for worse? What happens when one of those promises isn't kept? It's a, it's a tiny infidelity, perhaps, but it's still, still unfaithful to the promise. And Gussie says it's like 
reaching out with a knife and, and cutting one of those strings. It weakens the marriage. Every small infidelity, it weakens the marriage. And you may feel that, that weakening of the marriage. But at the same time, the marriage will often sustain some of that. There is just the fact that we're not all perfect. And none of us is a perfect husband or perfect wife. And sometimes we do damage to the marriage, damage to the relationship. And it's like, it's like cutting one of those strings or sometimes two or three of those strings. And, and you can feel the, the marriage begin to weaken. Most of the time, our marriages survive that, and we're able with renewed faithfulness, with, with renewed promise keeping to begin strengthening the marriage again. But what happens if one or the other or, or both of you reaches out one day and just slices the hammock right out from under you? Because sometimes it feels like someone has reached out and sliced the hammock right out from under you. The whole family collapses. What? What, what do you do then? What do you do if maybe you, you feel like you're in that marriage that's hanging by one string? And you feel like you're the only one hanging on. How long do you have to hang on? Is it ever okay to divorce? Is it ever time just to give up, walk away, and try to start over without her? Is that ever okay? Now, let's take a look at the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. I'll be really honest, I'm not going to answer that question, how long do I have to keep trying, because I can't answer that question for you. I, I cannot answer that question for you. There is simply not in the Bible a checklist where if this is true and this is true and this is true, then, then you're free to walk away. It's, it's just not that simple. But what we do find in Scripture are some principles of marriage and divorce. And what I want to do this morning is just take a look at some of those principles. And then what you have to do as a believer, what you have to do is, as a person who serves and, and honors the Word of God and the Spirit of God in your life, what you have to do is use discernment. And you have to take these principles and you have to prayerfully decide before the Lord when or if you were ever released from these promises, this, this covenant that you've made with God in your spouse. Let's take a look at biblical principles first. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, when it comes to marriage and divorce, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is one of the longest conversations, and it is one of the most practical. Paul is speaking more or less as a pastor to the church at Corinth, and they have obviously written him a letter asking a series of questions about marriage and divorce and sexuality. And Paul takes this long, long section of this letter and just tries to answer their questions. And he answers as a pastor. And he answers with a really, really strong sense of, of what real life is like. And I think that's what makes it helpful. So we're just going to kind of walk through. I'm going to stop, keep your Bible open, and we'll just take these one principle at a time. This would be a good sermon to take notes on if you want to save this for later. Start right at the beginning, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Again, he's responding to a letter they've written him, and he's answering questions they've asked him. So here we go. Now, regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to the wife. 
Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. <laughs> Y'all want me to stop there and talk about that? Uh, I'm about to. Uh, very, very important principle here, and just don't miss it. And Paul goes right to it. He goes straight to the question that they've asked about sexuality. And, and for the life of me, I don't really understand the question. They're asking, you know, would it probably be better if just nobody had sex? I guess there are people like that in every church. You know, is, is, is it good at all? Is there any good reason to have sex? And Paul's writing back like, are you people crazy? I mean, this is what he says. I mean, but that's their question. They are very, very concerned as believers about what they feel like is the impending second coming of Jesus. They feel like Jesus' return is just so soon that they're not really sure that there's any value at all in living a regular life. Should we even get married? Should we... Even, even be having sex. Maybe we should just be serving God full time. And Paul just sort of writes back and says, let's talk about that a little bit. It would probably be a good idea if we could all just walk around you know, like some sort of you know, sexless creatures. But that's not what we are. Uh, it's just Paul. That, that's not how God made us. Most of us simply are not created to live without, without sexual relationships. And Paul says that's a, probably a really good reason to get married. You just need to get married for that. It's better to be married than to burn with sexual passion. That's what Paul says. I mean, this is what he's leading with. But don't miss the principle because it's actually shocking and rather beautiful. Notice what he says. Verse 3. The husband, this is what he says first, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. He says that first, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. He always goes back and forth, the husband, the wife. But he starts with the husband. The, <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. The husband should fulfill, <laughs> my wife's like sitting right there. Uh, yeah. And he doesn't know how much he's asking, does he? I mean, this is, uh, I mean, Casey just can't get enough of all of this. You, you, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Yeah. It's like some nights I say, oh, Casey, can just let me watch This Is Us, please. And, uh, <laughs> let me go to sleep. I got to work tomorrow. Yeah. I'm a person. I'm not your boy toy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, I, I sliced the hammock right out from under. It's right there. Yeah. 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 Y'all pray for me. Pray for Casey's boy toy. Pray, pray for that. No, seriously, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll get back to this. The amazing thing that Paul says here is, is the husband should fulfill his wife's needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Notice how he goes back and forth here. Don't miss that. He says the husband gives authority, <laughs> the husband gives authority over his body to the wife. And the wife gives authority of, over her body to the husband. It's, it's this really important principle of marriage, Christian marriage. And don't miss it because it's beautiful. I'd call it mutuality. Mutuality is basic to Christian marriage. In other words, there's equal sacrifice and equal reward. 
It's probably a bad sign in your marriage if your marriage is a really good deal for one of you and a really raw deal for the other one. Understand? That's not God's intention for marriage. And especially when we're talking about Christian marriage, where everyone has the very same example who is Jesus. Everyone has a very same example for what love looks like, for what submission looks like. Everybody's following Jesus, and everybody's striving to be like Jesus and love like Jesus and forgive like Jesus. Everybody's learning to put the other person ahead of themselves. I mean, understand, we're Christians, and that means marriage for us has a different kind of shape. Our marriages should look like Christ. According to the book of Ephesians, the closest thing to Christ's love for the church that you're ever going to see on this earth is the godly love of a wife for her husband and her husband for his wife. Understand, it's mutual. It goes back and forth. It's really pretty shocking the way Paul puts this incredible mutuality as a part of the relationship. Women didn't have these kinds of rights in the Roman Empire, and especially from, from Paul's Jewish perspective. It's actually pretty shocking to say the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. That's pretty shocking to say the husband gives authority over his body to the wife. But Paul absolutely makes marriage this beautiful picture of mutuality. It's a basic Christian principle of marriage. There's equal sacrifice and equal reward. Y'all understand that? Do you get that? It's a very important principle here. Let's continue. Verse 6. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Paul is going to speak now about marriage and divorce, and he stops in verse 6 and makes this very, very important point. He says, I'm now speaking in terms of concession and not command. Now, what's the difference between a concession and a command? Well, what is a command? Yeah, it's an order. It's a, it's a thou shalt. And Paul says, I'm not speaking here in terms of thou shalt or thou shalt not. I'm speaking in terms of concession. Now, what's the difference? What's concession? There's a difference between what I command and what I concede. What is concession? With concession, you're talking about what, what's permissible. In other words, it's not commanded, but now we're talking about what's, what's allowed. There's a difference between what's commanded and what is permitted. And, and this is, uh, it's just the only way to put it, you all. So let's talk about this. God intends marital unity for a lifetime. Remember what we said when we started this series. God hates divorce. God created marriage as, as this triangular covenant between God and between the husband and the wife. And God's intention is marital unity for a lifetime. This is the command. But God permits divorce under certain circumstances. I, I know some of you wish I'd never say that, but I, I, I'm trying to preach the word to you today. And the word simply says this, the divorce is, is not a part of God's design. Divorce is not a part of God's intention. You can never say that it's God's will. But Paul says, I'm not talking now about command. I'm talking about concession. I'm not talking about what God intends. I'm talking about what God permits. And under certain circumstances, divorce is permissible. Y'all with me? I lost y'all at boy toy, didn't I? Come back to me. We're talking about what God permits. Turn back to Matthew chapter 19. Let's go to what Jesus himself says. 
Matthew, let me hear some pages turn. Matthew 19. You need to read this so you don't have to take anybody's word for it. Matthew 19, verse 3. This is Jesus speaking. The Pharisees have come, and the Pharisees are going to ask Jesus directly the question about divorce. But notice their question. Matthew 19, verse 3. Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife just for any reason? Okay, that's an interesting question. That's not usually the question we ask, but that's their question. What's their question? Does a man need any good reason to divorce his wife? It's, it's hard for us to imagine that that was the prevailing religious view in Jesus' day, but it was. The, the Pharisees had this tradition, and in their tradition, a man could divorce his wife for, for nearly no reason at all. He didn't need much. I mean, if she burned the toast at breakfast, that was reason enough. He just didn't need much reason. So that was the culture, a culture with very, very low esteem for marriage and, and, and incredible liberty for divorce. And understand that that was devastating for the women, devastating. So the Pharisees asked the question, does a man really need a reason at all to divorce his wife? That's the question Jesus is answering. So notice what Jesus says. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then they asked, why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? They asked. He, he did. In the Old Testament, Moses just takes for granted that a man can divorce his wife. It's there. Jesus replied, verse 8, Moses permitted divorce only as, uh, say the word, concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples then said to him, that's true, it's probably just better not to get married in the first place. Notice what Jesus says. The, the, the law permits divorce, permits, but only because your hearts are hard. So Jesus himself here, he sets up this same sort of, sort of tension here between what God intends and what God permits. There are situations, in Jesus' view here, the only good reason would be if your wife is unfaithful. But again, Jesus is answering the question, does a man need any good reason at all? That's the question Jesus is answering. And Jesus says, I can think of very few reasons that would be enough. You understand that? The only reason Jesus can think of would be just radical covenant breaking. But Jesus says, no, the bar is actually set very, very high. You with me? So God intends marital unity for a lifetime. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is what Jesus says. It's what God intends. But God permits divorce under certain circumstances. So, so, so let's keep reading. Let's go to verse 10. For those who are married, I have a command that comes from me. Not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, 
But if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. So in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 here, as you notice, there's a basic assumption. And the assumption is that if you're married, you're going to stay and make it work. It's what Paul says. If you're married, you just need to stay and make it work. For those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. You must not leave your husband, and a husband must not leave his wife. So understand that. In the Christian family, for those of us who follow Christ, for those of us who honor his word, the, the, the default position, our assumption is that we don't walk away. We don't. Uh, we just don't. In the Christian family, we stay together. We stay together. We do everything possible to, to stay together. Now, I know sometimes that becomes very, very difficult. Marriage gets hard. And sometimes to stay is the most impossible thing you've ever been asked to do. And, and it's just not pretty. It's not pretty and it's not pleasant. But, but, but as one guy said, sometimes it's better to, to win ugly than to lose pretty. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's better to win ugly. What does that mean? You stay. You, you, you fight. You, you scream. You cry. But you don't give up. And this is what Paul says. This is one of the basic principles here. If you're married, stay and make it work. This is Paul. Stay and make it work. Let's go on. Let's go down to verse Let's read verse 12. Let's read right there, verse 12. Now I'll speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a fellow believer has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to continue living with him, he mustn't leave her. Now notice Paul's uh, point all through this passage is stay as you are. Stay as you are. Stay with her. Stay with him. And if a believing woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. Stay with him. Just stay with him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy. But, but, but now, as it is, they are holy. If you're married, stay. Make it work. This is what Paul says over and over. Stay. Make it work. Stay. Make it work. But, but let's go on. Verse 15. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving... Let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. For God has called you to live in peace. Now, let's talk about that. Now, Paul very specifically is talking about the situation where you have a, a mixed marriage, a believer wed to a non-believer. And the question is, should I just leave him? He doesn't love Jesus. He won't go to church with me. Can I leave him? And Paul says, no, no, you, you don't leave him. You, you stay with him because you don't know that staying with him might not eventually bring him to Christ. You stay with her. Even if she's not a believer, you, you stay with her. But then the question arises, well, what if he won't be married to me? What if he leaves me? And what does Paul say? You can let him go. Yeah, really, really interesting, but, but here's the, the next sort of principle. You don't initiate divorce, but if you're forced to accept it, let them go. I, I know, I know that, that, that for some of you it sounds very, very shocking that, that I would say that, but I think it's what the word says. You don't initiate divorce, but if that person will not be married to you. Now again, Paul is speaking a very specific situation, the unbelieving spouse who leaves. 
And in that case, Paul says, if they will not be married to you, you're not bound to them. Let them go. If you're forced to accept it, you can't be married to somebody who won't be married to you. So if they initiate divorce, if they leave you, you can let them go. You're not bound. That's what Paul says. But now there are people then who want to take this principle here that, that, that's very specific, speaking about a, a non-Christian married to a Christian, and they want to say, well, how far can I take that? What if my husband says he's a Christian, but he still wants to leave me? Well, what if my husband, I mean, he says he was baptized as a child. He used to go to church with me, but, but, but I don't know if he's a Christian or not anymore. Maybe he is a Christian. I don't know, but, but, but he's leaving me. What do I do? Does this principle apply to, to two believers? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you can take what this scripture says and apply it to a situation where you have two people who are supposed to love Jesus. But honestly, a person who's supposed to be a Christian, who's not living like a Christian, that's already a contradiction. So I don't know what to do. But I'm saying here's the principle. The principle is this. You don't initiate divorce, but if you're forced to accept it, you can let them go. You, you cannot be married to a person who will not be married to you. Now, let's, let's look, look one more time at the end of that verse. For God has called you to live in peace. It's one more principle of Christian marriage. Peace is basic to Christian marriage. God intends you to live in harmony and security. God has called us to live in peace. So that also is a principle of Christian marriage. You're supposed to live in peace. Now, let's talk really, really honestly here. I said that if a person won't be married to you, you're not bound. If they abandon you, then you're allowed to let them go. That seems to be what the biblical principle says. But, but is it possible that a person could abandon you but never leave the house? Because that's what some people will say. Is it possible to be abandoned and, and yet that person never leaves? As a matter of fact, they're home all the time, but they're not with you in any way that would count as partnership or, or, or marriage. Now, it's very easy for most of us to say in, in any situation of abuse, if your spouse is abusing you, physically abusing you, then this is an absolute offense to God's intention that you live together in peace. You should live in harmony and security. And if your spouse is abusive, understand, he's not, you're, I mean, it's not like you're living as a spouse. It's like you're living as a hostage. And I believe that that covenant has been radically broken. And I do believe you have a certain permission to get out of there. God is not intending that you live in a situation where you're not safe. So if there's a situation of abuse, understand the word does not say you have to stay and take it. I don't believe that at all. God intends that we live in peace. God's intention is harmony and security. So if you're being abused by either your husband or your wife, you don't have to continue to take it. You're a hostage, not a spouse. You need to get out of there. You need to get to a place where you can find security. Peace is basic to Christian marriage. Peace is basic to what God intends for us. God wants us to live in security and harmony. Does that make sense? you understand what I'm saying? But as I say, there, there are those who say, Pastor Tim, I, I'm alone in this marriage. I'm alone. I'm, I'm abandoned. He's still there. He, he won't leave. I don't think he'll ever leave me, but... I'm dying here. 
Is it possible to break all of the marriage vows and yet never leave the house? Is it possible to slice the hammock right out from under her and yet stay right there day after day after day? What do you do? Let's keep reading. Let's go to verse 25 now. Verse 25. Now regarding your question about the young women who aren't yet married, I don't have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in His mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted and I'll share it with you. Because of the present crisis, I think it's best to remain single as you are. If you have a wife, don't seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, don't even seek to get married. But if you do get married, it's not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it's not a sin. However, those who get married at this time are going to have trouble. I'm trying to spare you those problems. Let me say this to brothers and sisters. The time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them. For this world as we know it will soon pass away. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please the Lord. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way it was, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. Stop right there. Um, You're asking the question, how long do I need to hang on? And this is what I can tell you from Paul. Your questions about marriage and divorce are answered in the context of your priority to obey and serve Christ. Your first priority is to listen to the voice of Jesus, to obey him and serve him. This is what Paul says. Even if you're married, he says, you can't just focus on your marriage. you got to serve Christ. You have to put Christ first. You have to focus on Christ. And it's difficult when you're married because you've also got to please your wife. But even in the process of pleasing your wife, you have to serve and please Jesus first. So even in a difficult marriage, even when you feel like you're hanging by one string, that does not remove your responsibility to obey and serve Christ first. So what you have to do is you have to get really, really close to Jesus. You're not going to make this decision apart from him. It's a triangular covenant, remember? And although you may want to let go, Jesus has this tendency not to let go here. He's faithful to all of his promises. I'm simply saying that in the process of answering this question, you have to listen to Jesus and you have to do whatever it is that, that, that makes certain that you obey and serve him. Your integrity before Christ is the most important thing here. You apply biblical principles and you follow Jesus. Now, let me give you one more thing. My, my buddy, David Geshe, he has eight steps in a marriage, sort of eight stages. The first one is ecstatic union. That, that's like the kind of marriage everybody dreams of. It's perfect love, 
pure hearts, joyful, blissful existence, ecstatic union all the way down to irreconcilable brokenness. This is where everything is perfect. This is where everything is now broken and hopeless. But there's stages in between that. He goes from ecstatic union to intimate partnership, cordial friendship, peaceful coexistence, tense silence, active hostility, all-out war, irreconcilable brokenness. Right now, where would you put your marriage? Those of you who are married, where would you put yourself on this scale? Are you living at ecstatic union? Wouldn't that be awesome? I, I was till this morning. It's probably over. <laughs> Many of you are probably more like here. Cordial friendship or, or peaceful coexistence. He's in the shop. You're in the house. And you both fall asleep, you know, watching This Is Us or, or whatever, Law and Order. And, uh, and you do this for years. It's peaceful coexistence. It's not really friendship or partnership. There's no ecstasy, but it's peaceful. It's there. Some of you are probably now in tense silence. You haven't really had a conversation in years. You both kind of know not to, not to bring it up, so you just don't talk. It's just tense, but you don't speak of it. Some of you cross the line into hostility. It's getting mean now. You're mean to her. She's mean to you. It's, can become an all-out war. Some of you have been there. Some of you may be there. The question is, uh, are you really here? At a place where there is no, no hope of reconciliation. It is so broken, there is no putting it back together. Are, are you really here? I don't know. I, I, I want to say you're not. It may be all-out war. It may be active hostility. It may even be a tense silence. But, but my point is, maybe there's still the possibility that instead of moving down this way, you, you can still move back up this way. I know that when you're living in active hostility, it's hard to imagine being back in ecstatic union. Maybe you never had ecstatic union, but what I'm saying is, Maybe for you, the goal isn't to try to get to this. Maybe if you could just move back into peaceful coexistence. Maybe if you could just take a step in this direction. Is it something you and your spouse could talk? I mean, could y'all talk about this today, tonight? Could you talk about what it would take to move from, if you're an all-out war right now, could you talk about what it could be if you could just go back to tense silence for a while and then maybe try to rebuild a friendship? Could you? I'm just trying to help you find some hope. My, my point is, you're probably not at this final stage, so maybe there's as much of a chance that you could begin to move back in the other direction as opposed to continue moving down in this direction. Maybe you still have choices to make. Nobody else in the whole world's gonna make this choice for you, and nobody in the whole world can answer your question but the Lord knows. He sees this whole thing all the way through and he knows what's possible for you and he knows what's possible for your spouse. And I'm saying maybe ecstatic union is, is not necessarily what, what y'all can have right now, but can you just get back to cordial friendship? Could, could you just begin to move back in this direction? It's going to take time. It, it's going to be painful, but maybe, just maybe, 
it's still worth it. It's amazing. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And, and I mean, Paul just continues to say, stay. Stay with them. Just stay with them. Stay with them. I'm not speaking as a command. There's a concession here, but stay. If you can stay, stay. Apparently, marriage is stronger than you thought. Apparently, this hammock is stronger than you thought. It turns out the only thing it cannot endure is a husband or a wife who just won't stay. Just saying, maybe, maybe, maybe you can stay. Pray with me. Lord, there may be a woman in this room for whom the word stay. It's the most painful word she could hear. It could be, Lord, that there's a man in the sound of my voice for whom the word stay is the most impossible word to hear. I don't know, Lord. The last thing I would want to do is to increase the pain of those who are hurting. And there may be nothing as painful as the pain of being in an unhappy marriage. But Lord, we know that you created this for something different, that marriage was about equal sacrifice and equal reward, that it was about harmony and security. It's about living in peace, Lord. That kind of peace seems completely out of our reach, Lord. As husbands and wives, Lord, we don't live in peace very well, and we aren't very good at putting the other person ahead of ourselves. And when we have lost faith and hope and love, Lord, we don't recover these things well. So, Lord, today I, I just pray for marriages in this house. I pray for those, Lord, that feel like they're hanging by one single string. I pray, Lord, that you'll give them wisdom. Lord, if you want them to hang on, Lord, then I pray that you'll give them a sign today even, a sign of hope, a sign, Lord, that somehow it's going to be worth it, a sign, Lord, that this is still what you require, Lord, to, to hang on, to stay, Lord. If there's the person, Lord, who needs to simply face the truth and face the facts, Lord, and let them go, then, Lord, I pray you'll give them that strength as well, Lord. We don't know. These things are so difficult. Lord, we know there's a long way between what you intend and, Lord, sometimes the lives that we live. Lord, we want to live as close to your perfect will as we can. So, Lord, help us. Those of us who are married, help us not just to focus so much on our marriages, Lord, but help us to focus on the relationship that is most important, our relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you'll just make it so that we focus on you, so that we listen to your voice, Lord, so that if we need to stay, then all of the love and hope and faith and strength that we need to stay with this woman, Lord, will be found in us because of you, not because of anything in us. Lord, it is with you that all things are possible, Lord. Some of us feel like we're in an impossible marriage. If it can be possible, then, Lord, you are the one who will have to make that difference. So give us grace and peace. 
lots and lots of love for one another, Lord. And I pray as a church, Lord, that we will always have grace on those who struggle and those who fail and those who hurt. Lord, make this always to be a safe place for people, Lord, who are caught in the misery of real life. Lord Jesus, today we bring all of our misery to you. We wish that we could trade it for joy. Give us grace today, Lord, to trade at least part of it for hope, for joy. For Jesus' sake, amen.